Um, again, Stanger mentioned this, Ryan Stanger, Dr. Stanger mentioned this earlier, that we don't know why you're here today. In fact, I would venture to guess that many of you don't know why you're here today. Um, if you thought a little deeper, maybe you would discover something, maybe you wouldn't. But um, the truth is, the good news is, regardless of what your motivation is that you're aware of or not aware of, um, the good news is that God has drawn you into this place, and it would be my prayer that in drawing you into this place, that you would have an encounter with the living God, right? Whether that's through a song that uh, we have sung or are going to sing, whether that encounter with the living God is something you experience as you have a conversation with someone in this room, or whether it was through something that Ryan said this morning, or something that you read out loud, or whether it's through the sermon, whatever it may be, um, my prayer again is that God has drawn you into this place so that you would encounter him. And ultimately, um, that you would enter into a relationship where you walk with God as your father and his son Jesus as your savior. Now, we're in the middle of a sermon series right now on the book of Philippians, and uh, we're actually in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. But I'm going to very quickly recap a few of the verses that we've um, heard so far as we've read through the book of Philippians, because I think what you're going to find is that in each of the chapters of the book of Philippians are some verses that you've probably, at least many of you, have been hearing your entire life, whether you've heard them culturally or if you've heard them in the church. My guess is they're very familiar. So let's look at the first one. It's taken from Philippians chapter 1. And let's look at how Paul even begins this letter to the Philippians. Again, he's in jail in Rome, but he's writing to this church in Philippi. And here's what he writes to them. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. And all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so Paul um, writes ultimately about this, um, this tension between perseverance, which is our part, and preservation, which is God's part. The good news is that preservation is the stronger of the two. Then we heard some verses from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 are uh, some verses which I think in some respects form the thesis of, uh, of this entire book. Paul begins writing by saying this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value or consider others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, or in other words, even though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so part of what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, the foundation and the basis for your morality, the foundation and the basis for the way that you interact with other human beings is really found completely in the way that Christ lived his life life. He humbled himself and became a servant. Last week, we heard John talk about Philippians chapter 3, and we read the following verses. Uh, In these verses, Paul said this. He said, but whatever were gains to me, in other words, the righteousness in my past, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In other words, it's not by being good. It's not by being uh, incredibly obedient that I gain righteousness, but ultimately that which is through faith in Christ. It's good news 
our righteousness, our ability to stand before God and for God to declare us not guilty and to declare us righteous is found ultimately because of our faith in the work that Jesus did on our behalf. These are fantastic verses. This is, uh, it's been great for me actually to have to preach through Philippians and to be reminded essentially of the gospel over and over and over again. Now we're going to jump again into Philippians chapter three here in just a moment, but before we do that, I'm going to take a moment and uh, we're going to pray. Father, I pray that uh, as we read through your word today, and as we even prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, that the resounding um, message or truth that would echo in our heads and in our hearts would be that, um, that our hope is in you, uh, that our ability to persevere, to press on to the end of the race isn't ever going to be found in our ability. It's not ever going to be found um, in our hard work or in our volition or in our mental fortitude, Father, but our ability to press on all the way to the end of the race is always, Father, because you're carrying us. Um, It's always because you have infused us with the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. And so I pray that our hope today, uh, I pray that our joy today would be found um, in knowing Uh, that you love us and that you carry us and that you've supplied all we need in your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things today. Amen. Now, just a moment, I'm going to show you a clip from one of my top three movies. And uh, this is a movie that I highly recommend to all of you. Uh, But I also, in recommending this movie, Chariots of Fire, to you, I think it came out in 1983, I recommend that you start watching it at about five in the afternoon when you're still good and awake, right? And maybe you have some coffee because it definitely is contemplative. It's definitely a little slow. It's a little quiet, but it's a fantastic story. And uh, just so you know, the story really focuses on these two different runners. We're going to get to them in a minute. Um, But ultimately, this is taking place in the 1924 Paris Olympics. And uh, these two men that you're going to see in just a moment are Eric Little and Harold Abrams. Both of them um, are fantastic runners. Both of them are supremely and extremely uh, successful in their track and their field careers, but they're motivated by very, very different things entirely. Watch this little clip, and then we'll jump into it and uh, see how this pertains to Philippians chapter 3. Where does the power come from to see the race to its end from within? for a purpose. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure.
So I, I, I probably should have cut that a few seconds shorter, but I wanted to, you to see the guy bending over and praying after he watched the guy, you know, Eric Little finish the race. Anyway, so again, f- many of you haven't seen this movie, and so you don't know what it's about, but essentially this man that we see on the screen, his name is Eric Little. And Eric Little is a, a very well-known um, Christian, right? In fact, he, after the Olympics, he went uh, to China to serve as a missionary where he ultimately died. And again, this, uh, the film here, which again is a true story, really um, is a comparison of these two different runners, Harold Abrams and Eric Little. And what's interesting is you could hear that quote in the movie clip where it says uh, Eric Little is, is talking to his sister, and he says to his sister, he says, I believe that God has made me for a purpose. I also believe that he's made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And so what's interesting is throughout the movie, you see that Eric Little is able to press on. Uh, He's able to run the race, not only as individual races, but the race of his life, because he knows that he has God's pleasure. It's not something to be gained, right? It's something that he already has. Now, what's interesting is in the movie, they do a fantastic job of contrasting Eric Little with Harold Abrams, who is essentially his main rival, and Abrams, who ends up winning the 100-yard dash in this 1924 Olympics, runs for very different reasons. There's one scene where he's talking to his girlfriend, whose name is Sybil, and he says, you know, why do you sing? She's a professional singer. And she says, it's my job. And then she says, no, 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 that's wrong. That's not why I sing. I sing because I love it. And then she responded to him. She said, why do you run? And he said, "Uh, I'm an addict. He said, it's a compulsion. He said, I run and I use it as a weapon, right? It's a really interesting scene because he's basically saying, I use it to fight off my personal demons and I use it to fight off the demons of those who would oppress me later on. He says this again about why he runs. He says, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence, There's this really interesting contrast between the two of them. Tim Keller actually refers to this in one of his books. And in his books, he says what's amazing is that little, right, the Christian, is able to rest even while he's running. Abrams, on the other hand, is never able to rest even after he's won, right? It's two totally different motivations. And what we see in this passage today of Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21 is that ultimately Paul is using a race metaphor, right? Several times he's talking about pressing on to take hold of this thing at the end. He's, he's sort of painting this mental image or this mental picture for the Philippians, and he's saying the Christian life, my life as a Christian, your life as a Christian, is like a race, and we've got to run to the end. And part of what he ends up talking about, and we're going to get into this later in um, this passage, is ultimately that some people run um, like Eric Little, right? And they run at rest. Others run because they're trying frantically and fearfully to take care, take hold of this prize, which Paul talks about. But ultimately, he even says they're enemies of the cross. Uh, Let's get into this. Let's read verses 12 through 21, then we'll talk about what these things mean. Again, Paul is writing to the Christians that are at the church in Philippi while he's in jail. He says this, not that I've already obtained all of this, all the benefits of union with Christ, salvation, the resurrection of the dead, um, holiness, um, a full knowledge of Christ, or have already arrived at my goal. In other words, I'm not at the end of life yet, but I press on, here's the race metaphor, to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. 
And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to that which we have already attained. Again, it's the picture of Eric Little. I can run because I feel God's pleasure. I've already got it. Verse 17, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, this is a long chunk of scripture and uh, we have the Lord's Supper today. And so I can't say everything that's in this passage. And so I've got to choose a few things to talk about. And so the few things that we're going to talk about really come under this idea, this concept of the race metaphor again where Paul is saying, this, is, this Christian life is a race, right? And in, like any race, whether it's a 3.1-mile cross-country race or a 26-mile uh, marathon or whether it's the 100-yard dash, um, whatever it is, you have to press on to the end. Now, again, if you remember, there's a little bit in there where he says there's a warning here. And the warning is this. The warning is found in verses 18 and 19. And his warning is he's basically saying some people press on, right? Or they look like they're pressing on, not unlike Harold Abraham's, but in their pressing on, they're actually hostile to the gospel. Now, bear with me for a minute. Bear with Paul for a minute. We're going to look at this. Verse 18, he says this, for as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, again, Paul's not saying this in a vindictive way. He's not angry about these people. Ultimately, he says with tears, with sadness, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. Now, let me call time out very quickly here. It's very easy um, to think, okay, well, obviously, Paul is talking about people who are antinomian or licentious. In other words, these are people who just kind of live however they want to live and they go crazy and they live immoral lives and they just sort of go, hey, you know, I'm glad that Jesus died for me. But in doing so, what they're doing is they're underemphasizing um, the offense and the harmfulness of their sin and they're underemphasizing the power and the great wealth and worth of Jesus' death on the cross. It'd be easy to think that's who Paul is talking about here. And some people in this room, some people, um, of course, in the world live this way. I don't think that's probably who Paul is talking about here. He's been talking about another group. And uh, the other group are the group that we would call the legalists. These are the people who think that uh, they can earn God's affection, right? Or they can earn God's uh, favor, right? And, and essentially, um, that's probably a little bit more who we are in this room this morning. I'm going to unpack that in a second. But before I do, I'm going to use a little illustration of two guys that you're probably somewhat familiar with. Their names are Rigetti and Pintel. I don't know if you guys remember these guys from Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, they are two of the comedic elements in this uh, film series. But uh, there's one scene in the second movie called The Dead Man's Chest. And these two guys, in the first movie, they were immortal. They had been cursed and they couldn't die. Well, in the second movie, they have lost their immortality, and so now all of a sudden they can die. And uh, uh, there's one scene where they're in a rowboat, and they've escaped from prison, and they're actually headed to, uh, to go get Jack Sparrow's ship because they're going to try to steal what's left on his ship. And in the midst of um, being on this rowboat, they're having a little bit of a discussion. Let me, let me jump in really, really quickly here. Uh, they say this. It says, Rigetti 
who I think is the guy on the left, is seated in the back and appears to be reading a Bible, which, by the way, is upside down, symbolic of the fact that he can't read, right? It says this. It says, he pauses for a moment and says, well, I say it was his divine providence that escaped us from jail, right? So he's, they're talking about how they escaped. And so Rigetti all of a sudden has gotten a little religion in his, in his mortality. And he says, I think God saved us. Pintel, that's the guy on the right, responds uh, by saying this. He says, and I say it was me being clever. If you've ever been to Disney World, you've seen on Pirates of the Caribbean that uh, this guy, Pintel, has the bone. He tries to get the dog to come over and get the keys, etc., etc. There's a dog in the front of the boat holding those keys in his mouth. Turning uh, to it, Pintel asks, ain't that right, Poochie? And then he says, well, how do you know it weren't divine providence that inspired you to be clever, Rigetti asks. Anyways, I ain't stealing no ship. It ain't stealing, Pintel replies. It's salvaging. And since when do you care, Rigetti says, since we're not immortal no more, we got to take care of our immortal souls, right? So all of a sudden, the guy sitting in the back of the boat, reading the Bible upside down, he's lost his immortality. He's now mortal. And so he says, hey, I'm not going to steal because I got to take care of my mortal soul. I got to take care of my own salvation. And then referring to Rigetti's Bible, Pintel says, you know, you can't read. It's the Bible, Rigetti counters. You get credit for trying. Right? It's a great, it's a really good little scene. Anyway, now, so what's interesting is here, what the picture being painted, particularly of Rigetti, is the picture of what we would call a legalist, the picture of somebody who Paul says is an enemy of the cross. He uses this word ekthros, which means to be hostile to, to be hostile to the cross. And you're probably wondering, well, I'm in church today. Paul's writing to people who are Christians. Why would he even be talking about this? These are people who, who obviously assume that their righteousness, their acceptance is based upon the cross, right? But Paul says that they're enemies of the cross. And in particular, he's writing about this group of people that we would call legalists, people who obey the law. And basically, the reason that they are enemies to the cross, the reason that we are often enemies to the cross, is because the reason that we live like Rigetti, right? We don't steal, we read the Bible, even if it's upside down, even if we can't read, is we're trying to get credit for trying. And the reason we're trying to get credit for trying is because we don't actually believe that the cross was enough. Does that make sense? We don't actually believe that uh, when Jesus sacrificed his only son, we don't actually believe that that was enough. In other words, what we're telling, um, what we're telling God is we're saying the sacrifice of your son is not enough. Now, many of us in this room this morning are actively, actively living as enemies of the cross, right? Whether it's by legalism, I do it every single day. I promise you I do. I have a tendency to view my relationship with God through that same lens, the lens that Rigetti has. If I've been pretty good today, I feel like God accepts me, right? Or if I've you know, sort of had a, a certain level of absence of complaining or an absence of badness, then I feel like, okay, I can come before God. But functionally, what I'm doing is I'm living as if the cross wasn't enough, right? Others of you in this room or maybe on the licentious side. Maybe you're the people who are kind of saying, I'm going to live however I want because Jesus died on the cross for me. Therefore, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. But what you need to understand is that what you're treating, you're doing is you're ultimately treating God's gift of his only son, Jesus, on the cross with contempt. You're not only underemphasizing your own sin, but you're underemphasizing the majesty and the glory and the weight and the gravity of the cross, right? That was number one. Number one is some people press on, but they're really doing it um, for the wrong reasons. And ultimately, they end up as enemies to the cross, right? And that's to some degree you and to some degree me. 
The second thing we see in this passage, this idea again of the race metaphor, is that we can press on because we're able to forget not only our past sin, but we're able to forget our past righteousness as well, right? So look at verses 13 and 14. They say this, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now, again, in context here, Paul is forgetting, right? He's able to forget what's in his past. And in particular, the, just prior, prior to this, what he was saying is, I used to completely believe and think and act in such a way as if my righteousness, the fact that I was a super Pharisee, I was an ultra legalist, I was a super law abider, I used to act and think as if my righteousness was based upon, uh, and my ability to be accepted by God was based upon my goodness and my righteousness, if that makes sense. But what he's saying here is he's saying, I have to actually forget that. I have to look back and I have to forget all of that and not cling or hold to that anymore as I seek to press on. In the same way, not only is Paul able to forget his righteousness, he's also able to forget his sin, right? Because we know that Paul was a racist, right? Paul, Paul hated the Gentiles. He hated people that weren't Jews. He functionally wanted them to go to, to hell, right? He didn't want them to be saved. That was one of the, the operating principles, not only of the ancient Jews at times, but also some of these Pharisees as well. So, so Paul was a racist. I think he would have admitted that. And not only that, but he was a murderer, or at least an accomplice to murder. And so part of what Paul is able to say here is he say, he's able to say, I'm able to press on to the end of this race because I can forget what is behind me, because God's enabled me to forget what is behind me. Not sure how many of you know much about football, um, but um, I know a little bit about it. I love football, although I don't get to watch it very much because I work on Saturdays and Sundays, so I've had to sacrifice that. But uh, there was a, there's, there's a position which I think is maybe the hardest position to play in all of football. No, it's not kicker, for those of you in here who thought that might be true. It's cornerback. So the cornerback is the guy that covers the wide receiver. And uh, one of the things that is a, a phrase that gets thrown a, around a lot in football is that to be a successful cornerback, you have to have a short memory. Okay, you have to have a short memory. And the reason you have to have a short memory is because you're going to get burned. Like people are just going to beat you when you're playing corner because it just happens, right? Now that, that phrase, you have to have a short memory, is actually taken or first uttered by a man named Lem Barney. So I've got a picture of Lem up here. He was a seven-time pro bowler uh, for the Detroit Lions, right? So he went to the pro bowl over and over and over again. The last year he went was in 1976. He was a fantastic cornerback, incredibly athletic, incredibly fast, incredibly thoughtful, incredibly, um, he had incredible mental fortitude. And when he was being inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, someone asked him, what does it take to be a successful corner? And this is where the quote comes from. He says this, he said, what a cornerback truly needs is a short memory, right? And part of what Paul is saying here is he's saying, we need to have a short memory not only in terms of our successes, but also in terms of our failures. We need to have a short memory, not only in terms of our righteousness, which we try to cling to, but also in terms of our sins, which also we have a tendency to cling, cling to. But our short memory isn't the result of some sort of mental toughness or mental fortitude or some sort of volitional uh, decision that we make. Rather, our ability to forget what is behind is ultimately because our confidence is in God and in the gospel. Does that make sense? Right, so this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a few minutes, and part of what this meal communicates is your past record of your sin is erased, right? It's, it's completely gone, right? Not only that, but your righteousness, 
Paul's already said it's worth nothing, and so it's gone too. When you eat this meal, when you drink this wine, when you eat this bread, what God is communicating to you is he's saying you can press on because you don't have to think about the past anymore. You don't have to be bogged down by your failures. You don't have to be tempted by your successes. You can simply look at my son Jesus. You can look at the cross and know that everything that is required was taken care of in Jesus' perfect life, death, his resurrection. We keep our eyes ahead. We look forward to take hold of the prize because ultimately our confidence is uh, not simply in our ability to somehow gain that salvation, but ultimately our confidence is in our Savior. Last point we see in this, uh, in this passage that we're going to talk about today is that we can press on because we remember that Christ first took hold of us, right? We can press on because ultimately we know that it's God. It's Christ who holds on to us. It's, it's God that holds us on his shoulders and carries us to the end. Listen to verses 12 and 14. They say these things. Paul again is writing. He says this, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. In other words, what Paul is saying here is he's saying, the only reason that I'm holding on to Jesus is because he took hold of me back on that road, on the Damascus road where he got my attention. And he grabbed me, not only physically, but he grabbed my heart. Verse 14, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Again, God's the one who holds on to me. Again, the problem with legalism is that it doesn't fully trust God's calling of us or ability to hold us. So legalism seeks to add what we think somehow or we doubt uh, that God has provided us. And so the obedience of a legalist is almost always this frantic, fearful, unsure obedience, right? It's always tenuous because ultimately it doesn't believe that, uh, that its ability to be held and loved comes from God, but ultimately comes from its very frail power to hold on to God. Again, uh, the obedience of someone who's a legalist is never set free from the grace by the grace of God, but is always held in the fear of, uh, and the franticness of not knowing whether or not they've done enough. Now, this morning, I asked Ryan Stanger, who led worship this morning, to come up and share a little testimony. And uh, the testimony is ultimately about a father's ability uh, to hold on to their child. <clears throat> we adopted, uh, many of you know, we adopted a little girl from China almost two years ago now. And um, her story is not every orphan's story, so let me say that. Um, but she has a lot of the elements of children, particularly children that were in an institutional setting. So she was there for two and a half years before she met us. And she was by herself. She was on her own. And her works were her righteousness. And her works did earn her love. And her works um, earned her affection. And um, I, Brian asked me to talk about this because often when people ask me about her, when you all see her, you just see a glowing little girl who's obedient. And, you know, she's a good listener. And she's cute. And she's funny. And she is all those things. But what you don't see is what I can see as her father. And when we're at home together, um, ever since the day that we brought her home and we chose her, she's been trying to earn my love. She tries really hard. She mimics what the other children do. She does their little dances when they do their dances. And she tries very, very hard to earn my love. But she doesn't know that I'm her father yet. She is getting from me love, security, affection, food, a place to live. She's getting all those things, 
but those aren't the things that I want to give her. But she still thinks that she's earning them. And it's a fascinating thing to watch for me as a son of God who is constantly trying to earn that relationship there. What she most needs from me is a father, but she doesn't know she has that yet. And she is frantic, and she is fearful, and man, when she fails, she is devastated. Because when she realizes that she has failed this person who's providing these things, it seizes her that she could lose it. Those things that has been offered her, those security that have been offered her. And it's helped me to see my relationship with God in a brand new way, in the gift that he has given me in calling me son. I'm not a second-place citizen, and she's not second place in our home. And her, my relationship with her is never in jeopardy, yet she's so fearful and so frantic, and I want like crazy for her just to understand that I'm her father. And inside that, the thing that I can feel that you can't necessarily see is there's just no rest. She doesn't rest. When I hold her in my arms, even after she's failed and is trying to repent and get back on the track, she'll turn right around and, and kind of go back to that old way of thinking, which I see in myself. So I don't, I don't put her down for thinking that because I see the same thing in myself. I chose her to come and live with me and to be her father, and she can't change that. And that's the beauty of it. I'll continue to pursue her until she gets it. And it's changed the Lord's Supper for me because I always had a really hard time taking the Lord's Supper. Always. Because I could never quite believe that it was really true that he says to me, son, come sit at the table. Don't come sheepishly in the back. Don't earn your way. And don't be afraid. He just says, sit and enjoy with the family. So Ryan and I went to lunch this last week, and just as we were chatting, he sort of shared you know, their, um, his relational dynamic with Lynn. And I thought, wow, that'd be perfect for the sermon this week. Because ultimately, um, th- one of the best pictures of the gospel is this, this picture of a parent and child. And, uh, and what some of you don't know yet, because you don't have your own children, is uh, there's nothing that our children can do to not be our children anymore, right? There's no, there's no way in which, you know, Sam or May or Levi um, can unearn my love or unearn my affection. They've got it, right? That's the same thing that Ryan was saying. He's saying, you know, when you've got my love, you don't have to earn it. You can rest, sweetie. And Ryan mentioned this meal, the Lord's Supper today. And, um, Part of the reason that we wanted to end with this point is to let you see the love that a father has for his adopted daughter in particular. And what's being communicated in this meal is this is the family table, right? This is the family table of those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the family table uh, of those who are adopted daughters and sons of God. And what this, what this family table communicates is that your ability to sit down at this table today and to eat this bread and to drink this wine, it's not because of your performance, Right? I mean, your ability to sit down and to take this bread and to drink this wine comes because of something you already have, which is the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. You've already got the gift of God. You've already got the cross on your behalf. So for those of you who trust in Christ alone for your salvation today, you've got this. You can press on to the end of the race because you know that you can mess up again and again and again and again, and there's nothing that you can do to out-sin God's love. 
There's nothing that you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now simply because you are his child and he's invited you to sit at his table. I'm going to read the words of institution. I'm going to pray. And I'm going to simply ask you to take a moment um, or several moments and pray and think and reflect about all of these things that we've talked about today. And I want you ultimately, hopefully, to be able to rest and to press on in light of the cross and in the light of Jesus' life on your behalf. For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that um, you uh, reveal uh, a CAT scan of our hearts and souls, and you reveal to us that we frequently fall off one side of the horse or the other. Either, Father, we're constantly trying to earn your affection because we don't believe we've got it, or, Father, we are taking advantage of your affection, in which case um, we're treating the cross with contempt. And, Father, we'd be liars if we said that we didn't uh, err on either of those sides um, at some times. Father, we're guilty. But, Father, I pray that you would enable us to press on to the, to the end of the race um, because we know that we don't have to remember those things that are behind us anymore because you've erased them, you've undone them, um, you've declared them righteous, you've covered those things over with the blood of your Son, Jesus. And, Father, ultimately our ability this morning to come to this table, this family table of bread and wine is precisely because you, as our Father, have adopted us. You have taken hold of us, and you hold us still, and you will hold us uh, to yourself all the days of our lives. So, Father, let us come to this table today, and let us receive this declaration that you love us, that you love us. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.